All right, well, good morning. Good morning and welcome once again to Redemption Hill Church. My name is Raymond. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a privilege again to serve you guys along with Robert and Chris and just to be a part of what God's doing here through this church, Redemption Hill. Um, Let's pray and then I'll I'll tell you a little bit else about what we're going to do when we get started. It's Father's Day, so Heavenly Father, just thank you for who you are. Thank you for being a a father to all of us. Uh, And I ask that now that you would just open our ears and open our hearts so that we would would actually hear what's being said, but but really even that we would understand it and that it would it would go down into a place where where it changes us. Maybe even immediately today as we're listening and also just let it let it go into a place where we don't lose what's being said and, and we have an opportunity to continue to be changed by it even after we leave this place. We ask all those things in your in your name and in the name of your, your great son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. If, if you're here with us for the first time, this is actually a great, week, a great week to be here. Every week's probably a good week to be here. But we're actually starting a new series today entitled Context versus Conjecture. Context versus Conjecture. And if you would, you can just open your Bibles, if you have them, to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 verse 9. And we're actually, we're actually also going to spend some time in John, the Gospel of John chapter 3, by the time we get to the end of today's message. Romans is the sixth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then Romans. And John, you would have passed, is the fourth book in the New Testament. And let me begin just by way of review. If you were here last week, then you remember we spent some time in 2 Peter chapter 3. And we looked at this whole business of keeping scripture in its context. And Peter actually gave the church, or the churches he was speaking to, he gave them a warning. I don't know if we have that slide with 2 Peter chapter 3. But if we don't, there it is. Peter said this toward the end really of his life. He he gave a a last warning to God's people and he said, there are some things in Paul's letters or you could say in the scriptures, in the Bible, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away. And we talked about especially that word twist when Peter said that there are ignorant and unstable people who are twisting the scriptures to their own destruction. We took a very close look at that word twist and we went back to the original Greek language that this was written in and and discovered that that word twist was the word strebloo. Now strebloo means, if you you go back to the noun form of that, a strebble or what was commonly known as the rack was a wooden device that was used to torture people back in Peter's time. And what would happen is they would actually put a victim on this device and they would fasten his feet or her feet to one end which was immovable and they would fasten the hands or the wrist to the other end which was movable. And they would torture the person by stretching the body out, sometimes beyond capacity. History tells us that people could be stretched up to a, a foot in additional length. And you get the picture here without being too graphic. If you were to keep doing this, eventually what would happen is that one piece of the body would become detached from the whole. And I thought it was really interesting that Peter used that word. When, when we read twist, that's the word Peter used. He said people 
in a sense, are putting the Scripture to the rack. And what is happening is they are so pulling upon the Scripture that a piece of it becomes detached from the whole context to which it belongs. Are you all with me so far, just to get a picture? And so what we decided to do was to heed the warning that Peter puts in this part of the Bible and to take care that we are not carried away by learning as a church. We're going to learn. Did you know you could learn in church? We're going to learn how to keep Scripture in its context. How to keep Scripture in its context so that we're not carried away by error. And the first Scripture we're going to begin with in this series is Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Very often taken out of context. We're going to learn today a little bit of what it should mean to us. Okay, so Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Keep this saying in mind. I I worked hard on this. Keep this in mind as we go through. Without the context for the content, we won't understand what God really meant. I'll say that again. Without the context for the content, we won't understand what God really meant. I did that primarily for those under the age of 10. They will remember that. So without the context... For the content, we won't understand what God really meant. And here's my outline for the rest of our time here this morning. I want us to pretty much ask and answer three questions when we look at Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Number one, how does this verse get twisted? Bless you. How does this verse get twisted or taken out of context? What do we force it to mean after we have pulled it out of its God-given context? Question number two, what kind of destruction... According to what Peter said, what kind of destruction do we witness as a result of this verse being taken out of context? And finally, question number three, what truth, what truth, what biblical truth is actually being twisted or eclipsed when we take this verse out of context? So let's start with the first question here. What does this verse get twisted into? I mean, how does it look after we have forced our own meaning upon it? Here's the verse, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you you will be saved. Now, here's the conjecture. Here's what we twist that to mean. We twist that to mean if at any point, if at any point in your life you have believed or mentally agreed to the idea that God raised Jesus from the dead. Or, if you have at any point in your life confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, just said those words, you will be saved. You will guarantee your spot in heaven. Right? So somebody is listening to the gospel. Maybe they come to church for the first or the millionth time, and someone says, just pray this prayer with me. This is a magic prayer. Just say... Jesus, I believe that you are Lord. And I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Now come into my life. Amen. And then we look at that person with nothing to work with other than the fact that they just verbally said those words. And we look at that person and say, you just said the magic words. You're saved. You are saved. This is not a magic prayer. So I need you all to listen here because there are some people who say those things and because of what God has done in their heart, 
they truly are being saved at that moment. I don't want you to don't don't want to throw that out. Won't, won't get too much into what being saved means because being saved is in all three tenses of time in the Bible, past, present, and future. We have been saved by the grace of God. We are being saved from the power of sin in and over our lives and we will yet be saved from the very presence of sin. So we won't spend too much time on that. But there are some people who say that very same thing and it's more than a recipe for what they want. They're not just cooking God and His Word up and putting it together in the right way to obligate Him into giving them some benefit that they presently believe they want. There's something going on in their heart and they express a heart of real repentance to God. And they say, I'm turning from who I am and what I am because of what you have just told me about Jesus. And they are changed. And then there are other people who say the same words. And you know who I'm talking about. Maybe some of you. They get right back up. They look at you with this thing, even if they don't say it, and they say, do, do, am I okay now? Is, is God off of my back? And then they go right back to who they were. Maybe it takes them a couple of weeks to do it, or a couple of years, but they go right back to who they were. And then you have to create this whole new ministry in the church, follow-up ministry. Now you've got to follow them up because they never really got saved. And then there are these other people you never have to follow up because they got saved. I'm not saying it's bad to call somebody if you don't see them, right? But some stuff that passes for follow-up, let's be honest, is really chased down, right? Chasing down people who don't want to have anything to do with you or Jesus. But they do want that benefit you told them about. They want some insurance, fire insurance, so to speak. All right, so here we are. Here we are. That is what happens when this this gets twisted. We twist this into a magic promise. Just say the magic word, and God is obligated. You can trick God. Have you ever seen that movie Dogma? I'm not not advocating that you watch it, because there are some some things in there that I would not advocate, especially in a church gathering. But, But the idea there was that you could obligate God into forgiving you. There were some angels who had fallen, and they found a loophole. They said, oh, you obligate God into forgiving you if you just do the right stuff. Say the magic word, right? Okay, here we go. So that's what happens when it gets twisted. It gets twisted into a magic promise. But let's look at question number two. What kind of destruction do we notice from that? And I'll tell you what kind of destruction we notice. Sometimes we actually don't even notice it, but it's there. If something were wrong with my car, very wrong with my car, as in there's an electrical problem in my car, and if I do not take it back into the experts to fix it, it could literally blow up one day while I'm driving. And I hear this, and I, I listen to what somebody said, and they said, so you need to take this into a mechanic and have it checked and worked on. And, and so I said, okay, let me just go to the mechanic. And I go to the mechanic, and, and the mechanic is not a mechanic. I don't meet somebody where I go who can actually fix the problem. But I was told, just take it to the mechanic. And I did that. I I went to the mechanic. And my car was there for a while. And then I I left. And I left there with this sense of security and assurance that everything was okay now. And then, three weeks later, my car blows up while I'm driving. And I have three passengers. Because you you never go to destruction by yourself. You always take people with you. Here's, here's the problem. I was told something that made me believe I was okay. 
but I was headed for destruction all the while. Because unless something true happens, unless an expert fixes the problem, my car is still going to blow up. Unless someone's heart has truly been changed by the good news of Jesus Christ and they have truly begun to understand the implications of what that means for their life, then it doesn't matter how many magic prayers they pray. Nothing's happened to fix their problem. They are still separated from God. If they come before Him this way in their sins, they will still be judged by Him. And in the words of Romans chapter 8, verse 1, they will suffer condemnation. Unless the problem is fixed. So the destruction that's going on here is a very slow, gradual, beneath the surface, undetectable at times kind of destruction, which is merely continuing in life as you are, going in a path where you are going up the wrong way on a one-way street, and you're going to come into a head-on collision with the living God of the universe in your sins. Now that is destruction, any way you slice it up. This looks like a magic promise when we twist it. The destruction is that you still got a problem with God and you think it's fixed and you're about to meet Him. Now let's ask the last question and spend the rest of our time together today on this. What truth is being obscured? What truth in the Bible is being twisted by this? Now here's what I would say to you. The truth that's being twisted is that there's a whole lot more to becoming a child of God than praying a magic prayer. We become children of God by the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts as we hear and believe the gospel. I'll say that again. The truth that's being obscured is this. There's a whole lot more to becoming a child of God than praying a magic prayer. We become children of God through the work of the Spirit of God as we hear and believe the good news about Jesus. Let's take a quick moment to walk through some of the immediate context of Romans chapter 10. And I'll show you what Paul was actually saying when he wrote this. And then we'll, we'll get back into John chapter 3. Starting in chapter 10, verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Israelites, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Let me, let me pause for a minute. Here's my proof that in the Bible... It's not simply good enough to have some kind of zeal or passion even for God if it's not based on knowledge. Because here you have a group of people who are passionate or zealous for God, but they're not saved. It's not good to just it's not good enough to be a sincere moral person. Still not saved. Still headed for a collision with God in your sins. Still not saved. Verse 3. Now watch this. Their zeal was not according to knowledge in verse 2. Paul, what knowledge were they without that leads them in a place of still not being saved? He tells us in verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law so that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. We read that and we say, well, then that means the law is is gone. There's no more law. That's not what that word end means. In the Greek, that word is the word telos. 
the teleological or teleological end. This is the purpose for which the law was here. If you could take the law from when God first put it into the world and watch it over time grow up into what it is supposed to be, like watching a baby grow up into full womanhood or manhood, what God is saying is that that picture in the law of my perfection and my holiness and my righteousness, you put that thing in the earth over thousands of years and let it grow up, you end up with Jesus. Jesus is the goal or the teleological end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes in him, not everyone who tries to keep these rules. He is the end, the goal of the law. He's the reason I put the law in the world in the first place. So that one day you might see him and go to him and be saved by what he does for you, not by what you do with this. Is, are you all listening to me? That's what this is. And he continues. Now, this is very important because if you knew your Bible the way that Paul's audience did, you would have been familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 30 as he... You wouldn't have had a chapter 30, but you would have been very familiar with that part of Deuteronomy as he said this. He said, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person, in verse 5, who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith, which Moses also wrote about in Deuteronomy chapter 30, the righteousness based on faith says this, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to raise him up from the dead. But what does it say? It is near you. The word is near you and it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What Paul says here is the opposite of the foolish, the foolish way of going through life, thinking that somehow if I work really hard to accumulate my righteousness one good deed at a time and then set that thing before God saying, God, does my, does my set of good deeds here cancel out and outweigh my set of bad deeds and is the net result positive for you and now do I get in on the basis of my own life? That's foolish. Paul says that's just as foolish as saying, let's go up to heaven and bring Christ down or let's go down here and bring him back up from the dead. No, what he's saying is God has already done through another what you are trying to accomplish on your own. Back in verse 4, here's what he says. Or back in verse 3, rather. There are some who are ignorant of the righteousness of God. It's Jesus. And instead, because of that, they are seeking to establish their own righteousness. They are trying to make themselves good enough to finally be accepted by God on the basis of how well they keep His rules. And the reason they do that is they, they are ignorant of this other way of being declared righteous by God, which is trusting in His Son whom He sent into the world to perfectly keep the law that you and I keep imperfectly no matter how well we do. You don't become good enough for God one day by continuing down that path. You fail to submit to God's righteousness as you seek to establish your own and you will never be good enough. You will find people out there who tell you you are good enough because they're comparing you to them. But you are not good enough for God. And the best thing you can do when you hear this news is to take that life to the one who can fix it. And actually fix the problem. And he does that when you put your faith in his son Jesus Christ. Now, now here's the truth being obscured. Not only that, 
But if we look at how people actually become children of God, it's much more than a magic prayer. Go with me to John chapter 3. And I changed my mind really quick. On your way to John chapter 3, go to John chapter 1. See, it's not too far away. I hope this is making sense. And I know there are, there are lots of questions that will come up as a result of what I just said. And we certainly don't have time to answer all of them, but at least not today. But hopefully, hopefully we can talk about those and get some answers later. In John chapter 1, in verse 11, speaking about Jesus, who in verse 1 is identified as the Word, who was with God and who was God in the beginning. This Word, identified in verse 14 as the Word that became flesh, and then identified by name in verse 17 as Jesus Christ, the one and only who came from God. This is the one being spoken of in John chapter 1, verse 11, not yet on the screen. But follow me. John chapter 1, verse 11. He, meaning Jesus, came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But, as I say, it's always important when God sticks his butt in the word. Just pay attention. But, to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then in verse 13, he's going to tell us how those children were born. There's lots of confusion about how children are born. When I watched cartoons back in the day, there was the stork. And the stork would bring children to the right families or to the wrong families, right? That was the joke of the cartoon. But, but when I got older, I realized it wasn't the stork. There was another way that God brought children into the world, right? So some of us need to grow up, John is saying, in terms of how we understand God bringing about the children of God into the world. Right? So see, in verse 12, it says that Jesus gave the right to some to become children of God, which I take to mean at least two things. Number one, they were not born with that status of being children of God, or even born with the right to become such until Jesus extended it to them. Do you all follow that logic? Is that clear? So I take it that when I was born into the world, the Bible is teaching me I was not born as a child of God in this sense or with the right to become such. And neither were you. So how then do we become children of God? Good question. Good question. Verse 13 begins to give us the answer. Verse 13 says, these children were born, watch this. He could have shortened this verse to say, we're born of God. But he goes through a lot to say they were born not in these three ways that you think they're born. They were born not of blood, which means natural descent. My parents are Christians, so I'm a Christian. That's not how this works. That's not how this works. Parents, you need to understand that because the goal of parenting is not to have nice kids who do what you want in public. It's to have kids who are changed by the grace of God. And they don't automatically become children of God by being in your house. Or by being in this church, right? So they're, they're not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. You don't become a child of God simply because you have some perfectly natural desire to escape hell and go to heaven. Or to get some other benefit that you think you're going to get from God if you become His child. Nor were they born of the will of a man. This is not like, I can just, you know, Lord, here, I dedicate my child to you and it just automatically happens this way. I will not say anything about a very popular idea in in church circles that I happen to love and respect, where the idea is, if I just 
have this child and dedicate this child, this child is now a part of the community of faith automatically. I, I don't think that's taught in the scripture. I don't think it is. I mean, I, I understand the arguments. I think there are good arguments on either side, and we can debate those as Christians, but I don't think the Bible teaches that. Verse 13 tells us they are born of God. Now, what does that mean? Chapter 3. Jesus tells us what that means a little more clearly as we get into a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And I'll tell you why this is so special for me. This is when I got saved. Still being saved, yes, but I first became a child of God as I was reading this chapter. It was 12 years ago at Howard University in Cook Hall, room 123, and I was sitting there reading the Bible with two, two fellows who were in a cult. These two individuals were part of a cult, but it didn't matter because the gospel I got out of the Bible was the right gospel. And as I was sitting here, something happened to me. I started reading this story, and it sounded something like this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. Now, Pharisees were... Pause for a minute with the reading. Pharisees were like the really religious guys that everybody thought you know, were the ones who were right with God. If anyone was right with God, it's these guys because of how well they kept God's rules. And so here he was speaking with Nicodemus in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night. So this is Nick at night, as they say. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again. So to be born of God, in chapter 1, verse 13, Jesus now clarifies for us, is to be born again. The way I used to hear that phrase, born again, it was always an adjective. There were Catholic Christians and Protestant Christians and Protestants were broken up into Baptist Christians and Presbyterian Christians and Pentecostal Christians and, and all these other kinds of Christians. And then there was this really weird, really just over-the-edge group called born-again Christians. In fact, after a while, people dropped off the Christians and they just became born-agains because there was just, we needed a new way of describing these people, right? And all of, all of a sudden, one day, I found myself being one of them. And so I fought really hard to fight that label. But here, here, I want you to notice something. Born again is not an adjective in the Bible. This is a state of being. This is an experience. This is something has, that has happened to you. And if you have not been born again, according to the words of Jesus Christ, you, you can't see the kingdom of God, much less get in. Nod if you, if you understand what I'm saying here. This is, and better yet, not if you understand what Jesus is saying. This is not about what I think. This is Jesus saying, unless one is born again, he, she, cannot see the kingdom of God. Whatever you've seen in me, Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of God yet because you're not born again. And then Nicodemus is very puzzled. When you, whenever you begin to hear the truth of God and about how you actually get connected with him again and become his child, it's very puzzling for people who are just accustomed to things down here. And so Nicodemus says, well, let me ask a question here. How, how can a man, verse 4, be born 
when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, a lot of people think that Jesus is talking about baptism here, born of water, that kind of thing. I don't think that's what he's talking about. That is my opinion. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I'm going to show you in the next verse why I don't think that's what he's talking about. Okay? Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit cannot enter the kingdom of God. See Nicodemus, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So I think Jesus clarifies what it means to be born of water in verse 5 by what he says about being born of the flesh in verse 6. Born of water and the Spirit, born of the flesh and the Spirit. So being born of water, I believe Jesus was saying is, you were born once in the natural way of water. That's flesh. But there's another spiritual birth that you've yet to experience. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And Jesus said, you must be born again of the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. Are you all with me so far? You are entitled to another opinion. I, that's mine as I read the scripture. We can, we can discuss that one. I, I think the next verse, I think number six clarifies number five, which is usually how scripture works in context. Verse seven, Jesus says, Do not marvel, Nicodemus, that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, I can see you're having trouble understanding how this spiritual reality works and how people become children of God. I can, Isaac, I can see you having problems understanding what's going on, he says to Nicodemus, and he, he says this. Let me give you an example from your experience that will help you understand this spiritual reality that you don't know the first thing about. And then he says, verse 8, okay, Nicodemus, it's like this. The wind. You want to know how people become children of God? The wind. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Something happens. You don't know where this thing starts. You can't catch it in your hands. You can't fully grasp it. You don't know where it goes. You see the effects, though. There are some things, as this wind passes through, you know it's passed through because of what you see and what you hear. You hear the sound, Jesus says. You notice the effects. You see the tree and you look at the leaves and they're blowing. The wind is there. You didn't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going after that, but you see what it's doing. And Jesus is saying, that's how it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Something, a wind, a spirit has come through, has collided with them, and their whole life begins to shake. If I could Harlem shake, I would do it. Their whole life begins to shake, you see it, you notice the effects, and they're changed. They're changed. You can't figure out what happened to that person, why your friend is crazy, hanging out with all the born-agains. You have no idea what's going on. But they're changed. Some of you, the Spirit's been, you, you just, all of a sudden, you just find yourself in a gathering with nothing but Christians, and you find yourself 
thinking about these things and you have new questions and you have new thoughts and you're, you're, you're trying to figure out what does a real relationship with God look like and, and this is new to you, like it was to me. I woke up one day and, and 24 hours before this point, no such thought in my head. I woke up one morning and here was my thought, first thing in the morning. Lord, I know there's more to a, to a relationship with you than I have. What in the world happened to me between the time that I put my head on that pillow and picked it back up? There was a spirit that blew into my life. And one of the first effects that I noticed was a new question about God. Some of you have questions about God and you you have no clue, you had no clue until this morning why it's there. But this is why. Let me all right, let me tell you the rest of your story. We can tell you how this thing ends. Jesus says you hear the sound, you notice the effects. That's all you can tell. See, the Spirit of God has come in and has done something. You can be born of the Spirit. And when the Spirit of God collides with your spirit, that's when you become a child of God. If if you are moved to be not only convinced, but compelled by this Spirit to come to Jesus Christ. You want to know what it looks like when the Holy Spirit begins to blow in your direction? That's what 1 Peter is going to tell us. I'm going to give you just one little piece of it. Not just the new desires and the new questions, and we'll, we'll end with this. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, there's this very interesting section where he begins to talk about some of the things that you notice. 1 Peter, toward the end of the Bible there, right before 2 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 12. I thought it was funny. All right. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So here's what Peter is saying. God was using some people to declare the words of God and to then write these words of God into Scripture. And as they did it, they were saying, who am I talking about? And when is this going to happen? And here's what was revealed to them. Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have... Pay pay close attention now. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Angels are trying to figure out this stuff. Don't, Don't be ashamed if you have questions. There are people, watch this, those who preach the good news to you have been sent by the Holy Spirit. Or, or they do this by the Holy Spirit who has been sent from heaven. This wind. What I didn't tell you from John chapter 3 is that in the Greek, wind and spirit are the exact same word. So Jesus might have said, this is how the wind is. That's how the spirit is. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. The spirit blows wherever it wishes. A lot of people have a problem with that. The, So I can't control who the Spirit blows toward? No. The Spirit blows wherever He wishes. Well, I thought I could control God with my prayers. The Spirit blows wherever He wishes. Don't don't pick a fight with me. Pick one with Jesus. This is where I let you take take the big big guy on. Jesus says the Spirit blows wherever He wishes. You hear the sound. You see people getting changed. You don't know where it started, where it's going. And here's what we learn. 
you know when the Spirit is blowing in your, in your direction because here's, here's what happens. There are some people announcing things to you, verse 12. And they are doing this primarily by preaching the good news to you about Jesus. See? By the Spirit sent from heaven, there are people announcing things to you as they preach the good news of Jesus to you. What things are they announcing? I'm glad you asked. Here's my answer. There is one true and living God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, including us. We have sinned against this God, and whether we agree with Him or not, there is a penalty for sinning against God. It is the worst thing you could ever do. It is the worst thing anything on earth could ever do is to sin against God. And it, it is only right in the interest of justice that there be a penalty which is exacted upon those who sin against the all-righteous, living, and holy God of the universe. And in the Bible, we are told that that punishment is death. I understand that many of us think that that is too harsh of a punishment. I'm not so sure that that should be your main concern right now. You see, you're in this car headed for death and condemnation. Because of reality. And your opinion will not serve as an adequate break. You're going to collide with God. I'm asking you to listen right now to reality. Though you have sinned, and though justice requires God to fully punish your sin because He would be unjust if He let anyone, anywhere, at any time, get away with sin, we would be able to look at God and accuse Him and say, you're not as good as you say because you let that person get away with that. God says, no, I am just, I will punish all sin, including the one in you. The good news is this. God was not interested simply in applying justice to our case. God is also very merciful. And He devised a way for our sin, which will be condemned, to be separated from us so that we will not have to be condemned along with it. And the way that He did that is by sending His own Son, Jesus, into the world as an offering for sin. And when Jesus went to that cross... He took upon His body the sins of all those who would trust in Him. Past, present, future. All those who would trust in Jesus. Their sins, which would have caused them to be condemned in the presence of God, were transferred by a miracle of grace onto the body of Jesus. And as God poured out all of His wrath, His righteous and holy wrath for sin, on His own Son, our sins were blotted out from His sight. If we believe. And then the miracle continued because God then said, I will not only remove your sin from my sight, but I will give to you as a free gift. You're trying to establish your own righteousness, but I have something better. I will give you Jesus as your righteousness. Such that when you appear before me for final judgment, instead of putting in front of me this, this journal or daily blog of your good deeds, you actually have Jesus standing in your defense. Do you still want to put your record in His place? Do you want Jesus or do you want your best efforts? That is what God does for us. That is how much God loves the world. That is how much God is good. That is the good news. God has done everything we could possibly try to do for ourselves and so much more. He's done it so much better than we ever could. And all He says now is... I put it within your reach. Believe in your heart that I raised Jesus from the dead. 
I have done a work that you can never do. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So someone's walking around in the Roman Empire saying, Hey, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. And, and that's what they would do. They would say, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. And the person would reply, Caesar is Lord. Just like they did in Nazi Germany. Hail Hitler, hail Hitler, hail Hitler. And one day, you would be walking down one of these Roman roads and you would say, hey, Caesar is Lord. And, and someone would look back at you and say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. You'd be taken aback if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Which could get you killed. But that's why he says in the next part, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He's going to raise you too. Are you all, you all listening to what I'm saying? We've got nothing to fear. And that's why Paul moves right through that part of Romans. And I, I wasn't going to say this, but he goes right into it. And he says, look, this is the way it is. All, verse 13 in chapter 10 of Romans, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they going to call upon the one of whom they have never believed? And how are they going to believe in the one of whom they have never heard? And how will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will they preach unless they're sent? And he launches into this thing of, if that promise is true, that you will be saved, you have nothing to fear, and you can go and give your life serving the Lord all over the world, reaching peoples who've never heard the gospel. <laughs> we take this out of the context of, of real salvation. We take it out of the context of missions. We take it out of the context of how people become Christians or children of God. We take it out of every possible context. But here's what God is saying. There's a whole lot more to becoming a child of God than praying a magic prayer. We become children of God through the work of the Spirit of God as we hear and believe the good news that I just announced to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. If that has never happened for you, you can be, hear me, you can be born again today. You say, how? Believe. That same thing that's happening in your heart right now that's causing you to listen and entertain this, believe. And submit yourself to God. Stop trying to establish your own righteousness and make yourself look like such a great person. And submit to His righteousness. Trust what He says when He said, I sent my Son into the world. Because you too, even you are a sinner. You will meet me. You cannot meet me as you currently are. You must be saved. You must be changed. My prayer is that you would be changed today. Let's pray. Lord, first I just want to say thank you. I remember. I remember when that happened for me. I remember this message coming to me. And I remember you causing something to happen in my heart. And I was changed. I'm still being changed. That was 12 years ago today. And here I am by, by your grace. Please do that for everybody sitting in here this morning. It's not been done yet. And please do that for anyone else listening to this over their computers. Only you can do that. And I ask you to be kind to those listening. To grant them salvation. To save them. Rescue them from the course that they're on right now. And, and continue to show them your goodness from this day forward. Lord, give them a, a good Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. Give them a good set of friends that will help them to, to answer those questions that are bouncing around in the mind and in the heart. And, and more importantly, Lord, give them your Holy Spirit and help them to understand what you have said in your scriptures. We ask all of this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. As is our custom. 
some words are going to, I'm two minutes, I'm two minutes off, but some words are going to come up on that screen to help you reflect on what you just heard. And I, I, I ask you, do that. Do that with each other even. I mean, if you have your husband or your wife with you or some friends near you, talk about some of these questions and, and uh, may the Lord bless you as you do that. Amen? Thank you.